0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young woman jogs through the fields of flowers as she thinks about the rest of her short holiday in Nevotville with her young daughter. Among the beautiful scenery that surrounds her She has no idea that a plan has already been put in motion that will cut short every dream she has. A gang of hardened criminals are headed her way, and they will show no mercy. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 62, The Flower Gang Murders. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dialabed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dialabed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Ilza, Marta, Natalie Duplessis, Nick Espak, Laura Lombard, Michelle DeVette, Heike Sanford, Shelley Lachenicht, Vanessa Praz, Gavin and Alicia Redoux for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much everyone, your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show with two online businesses, providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media, all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's case contains discussion of violence against a young child. It's important for you to note this because just as it's difficult for me to speak about the acts perpetrated on the victims in this case, I know that many listeners will find it difficult to listen to. If you choose to listen, I will provide another warning before I discuss the violence inflicted upon this child. Although today's case is sadly not uncommon in terms of violent home invasions in our country, It would stand out due to the huge amounts of violence involved, the unnecessary deaths, and of course the age of the youngest victim. It would also stand out because it happened in a place that was not accustomed to such violence, and even at a time when incidents like this were not commonplace. In researching this episode, I used the book Headline Murders by Chris Carsten, another book called The Number by Johnny Steinberg, as well as several media articles and judgments passed down some time after the perpetrators were convicted, which ended up altering their sentences. So let's get into Episode 62, The Flower Gang Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The story in today's episode takes place in a town called Nivotville in the Northern Cape. And in a way the town becomes almost a separate character in this tragic tale, so it seems fitting to begin with some history and details of the town. According to the tourism website dedicated to Nivotville, The village of Nivotville lies on the Bockevelt Plateau, where the Cape Feinbos meets the Hantam Karoo, Busmanland and the Knazflachter. It's a place where the experience of silence, space, and stars contributes to a tranquil way of life. End quote. The town is almost a four hour drive from Cape Town, and it's situated between Van Rainsdorp and Calfinia. Visitors to the town would almost always be there to see the famed carpet of wildflowers that spring up around three weeks after the heaviest rains in the region, which usually occur in February or March. Nevotville does have some other historic sites to visit, with some structures in the town dating back to the 1800s. As far as residents are concerned, as at the 2011 census, the town had 2,093 permanent residents. Those who are not lucky enough to find employment in the few shops will ultimately have either tourism or the surrounding rooibos tea or sheep farms as their options for jobs. When those options are expended, many will travel great distances every day to work in surrounding towns. According to an article in the Mail and Guardian in 1996, one of the members of the town's founding family still lived there. Eighty-year-old Hesse Nivot had been born in Nivotville and would die there. The town had been officially formed in 1897 when her father-in-law had sold part of his farm to establish the town. As is the case with most small towns, all of the permanent residents knew one another and Hesse Nivot had known Hendrina Lowe, who was affectionately nicknamed Hansie, for as long as she had lived on the farm Haldersich, just outside the main town. Hansie Lowe had lived on Haldesich with her husband for 20 years before he'd passed away from cancer. She was an entrenched part of the Nevotville community and served on many church and farm committees. With her sons, Hermann and Wilhelm, now out of the house, and her husband sadly having lost his battle with cancer, Hansi had worked to keep herself busy around the farm and set up a few of the rooms as guest rooms, which she hired out to tourists during the flower season. For eighteen months since her husband's death, Hansi had kept the farm running herself, it was a difficult and sometimes overwhelming task. So when she'd met a policeman from Caimus, Johann Verveers, and they first became friends and then began to care deeply for one another, the break in her solitary toil was a welcome one. Johann Verveers and his wife had divorced some time before, and he rarely saw his three adult children, so he too was feeling the sting of loneliness when he met Hansi. Although Hansi was seven years older than 50-year-old Johan, the age gap made little difference at their stage of life. Their relationship soon solidified, and Johan would refer to her as his fiancée. In September 1996, Johan Verveers had been on extended sick leave after receiving a shoulder injury while on duty. He decided to spend this time recovering and enjoying time with Hansi at Haldesig Farm. The Haldasich farm also employed one permanent worker, a middle-aged man named Job. Job and his wife Faki lived in a small home on the Haldasich property, about two and a half kilometres from the main house. Sheep farming is very common in the Nevotville and surrounding areas, with nearby Kalfinia being famous countrywide for yielding the tastiest lamb in the country. As a bit of a weird aside, one of the reasons the sheep in that area yield such tasty meat is because they nibble on very specific feinbors, which has a herby flavour, and as such, and my apologies to any vegetarian listeners, but they essentially marinate themselves in herby flavour from the inside out. In mid to late September, Haldesig Farm was a hive of activity, Hansi was looking forward to a pair of special visitors. 37-year-old Julia Fairbanks-Smith had been born in England on the 6th of April 1959 and lived there with her father Esmond, mother Prudence and brother Mark until her early 30s. It was at this point that she decided to move to South Africa. Julia was described as quite a firecracker. She was a strong and independent woman and had a fast-paced, high-stress job in the fruit juice export business. After her move to South Africa, she met and married Mike Wall. And in 1992, she gave birth to a daughter they named Emma. Julia was a very active person, and perhaps this is one of the things she enjoyed most about South Africa. She loved running and hiking and lived in one of the most picturesque and upmarket areas of Cape Town, Llandudno. Julia and Mike's marriage had sadly not lasted, and when they divorced, she reverted back to her maiden's surname, while her daughter still carried her father's surname. Julia's ex-husband lived in Zanin, which is almost 2,000 kilometres from Cape Town, and as such, Emma could only visit him occasionally. Her last visit to her dad had been in June of that year and Mike had recalled how the little girl had run around on the lawn and enjoyed the very different landscape of the tropical climate. Julia had planned this trip with Emma to visit her friend Hansi for quite a while. They'd originally intended to leave on the Sunday but Julia had called Hansi to say that work commitments had delayed her and she'd only be arriving on Monday the 23rd of September. She also said that they would have to leave earlier than expected, and could only stay until Wednesday. Hansi was disappointed that she wouldn't have more time with her young friend, but still looked forward to their arrival. This wasn't the first time Julia had been to Nivoteville to visit Haldesig. Just the year before, she'd planned a longer trip, and her parents had flown in from England to witness the flower spectacle in the town, and they too had stayed on the farm. Julia and Emma drove the almost four-hour trip to Nevotville in Julia's Mazda sedan. They arrived on Monday afternoon and were greeted by Hansi and Johan at the farm. Hansi had been preparing all sorts of delicious food for her guests, and she'd baked a tin of biscuits especially for little Emma. She'd save the most special meal, however, for the next day's public holiday. On the 24th of September in South Africa, we celebrate Heritage Day. The day is used to commemorate and celebrate the various cultures that make up the melting pot that is South Africa. The public holiday had first been celebrated in 1995, and before that, it was celebrated in KwaZulu-Natal as King Shaka Day. The meal that Khansi had planned for the 24th would definitely celebrate her own Afrikaans heritage, as it would be the colloquially termed budakos, or farmer food. Essentially, this is a reference used to describe any traditional Afrikaans recipe, but for most people it means a square meal of meat, rice, potatoes, and pumpkin. Yes, two starches and one veggie, because that's how farmers roll. Almost always the pumpkin is served sweetened with syrup or brown sugar and butter. The meats that Hansi would serve was from one of their own sheep. After a good night's sleep on Monday, Julia and Emma awoke on Tuesday morning to go for a drive and see the flowers. Johan's plans for the day involved collecting some casual farm workers from town and then working with the sheep for most of the day. Johan hired four men that day, collected them from Nivotville, and brought them back to the farm to work. Hansi placed the shoulder of mutton in the oven to slow roast early that morning and then busied herself around the house while Julia and Emma were out. At lunchtime, Johan returned to the house to grab a bite to eat. It had started to rain, and although he'd intended to go back and continue work, the rain would prevent him from doing so. So instead, he decided to call it for the day and told the farm workers to collect their wages, and he dropped them off in town. The men asked to be dropped off outside the bottle store, and when Johann stopped there to drop them off, his learned police officer observance skills had him focus on a car parked outside the Nevotville Hotel. Brown BMW was clearly a backyard spray job. Johann recognized. In his youth, Johann had studied panel beating and paintwork at technical college so he could recognise a non-professional spray job when he saw it. He briefly watched the three men standing around the car. He didn't recognise them, but he had a strange feeling about those men. Shaking off his concerns, Johann got back into his car and drove back to Heldersich. As he arrived around ten to five, Julia and Emma were just arriving back from their day out too. The smell of cooking food wafted through the air, and Julia told Johan she was going out for a jog. It had started to rain again, and Johan questioned the wisdom of her going out in that weather, but she said she didn't mind. She changed into her jogging clothes, and Johan pointed out that if she ran to the farm worker Job's house and back again, that would equal a five-kilometer run. Johan went to join Hansi in the house, and they kept an eye on Emma while Julia had her run. He couldn't shake the image of that badly sprayed BMW from his mind, though, and there was a very good reason for that. The story of the men in that BMW started on the Saturday before Julia and Emma had arrived in Nivoteville. Well, of course, their individual stories started long before that, and we'll get into that for some of them later. But the tale of how they came to be together, and the crimes they would commit in the run up and on the day of the 24th of September, started when Julia and Emma were still safely ensconced in their home in Lindadno, packing and planning their trip. Willem Mongao was the owner of that BMW. On Saturday, he'd been at a motorcar rally in Malmesbury. He was pumped up on adrenaline and looking for somewhere to buy alcohol and dacha. He found a shabine, or informal and often illegal, liquor outlet, and also met four men there. David Raters, whose street name was Doggy Dog. Douglas Andres Solomons, street name China. Johannes Spreinke's street name Moonlight, and Charles Adams, street name Chico. The men piled into Willem's car with their newly acquired liquor and dacha and drove into Darling Road to smoke a few joints. When they parked on the side of the road, David Reuters got out of the car. He did not join in with the dacha smoking or the alcohol drinking. Two of the other men pulled Mandrax tablets out of their pockets and started to prepare them for smoking. Willem saw this, and it's alleged that he joked, using a racial slur, and commented that men of their racial group seemed to like their mandrakes. The comment, if made, would likely have been a throwaway one from Willem, no harm intended, but Andre Solomons had not appreciated it. He pulled a knife out, and wildly began to stab Willem Mengea. After sinking his knife into Willem thirteen times, Solomon stopped, his bloodlust sated. It would later be suspected that the sudden and vicious attack had not just been the result of Willem's remark, but rather, it had more to do with Solomon's trying to impress someone present—the man who'd stepped out of the car. So as not to be exposed to the Dacha smoke, David Raters, aka Doggy Dog, was not just a career criminal. He was the newly minted boss of the Hollanders gang, a faction of the 27s. Raters was a powerful man, and it was believed that Solomon had hoped to impress the man with his violence. The other two men in the car had been taken aback by their sudden attack but as soon as they realised that Willem was dead, they quickly jumped in to help dispose of his body. They would do this by shoving Willem's body into black rubbish bags and burying them in a shallow grave on the outskirts of Atlantis. They then got back into the man's BMW and claimed it for themselves. For the rest of that Saturday, they trawled the coastal towns, looking for opportunities to steal and when they ran low on petrol, filling up at petrol stations and then racing away when it was time to pay. By Sunday, they were starting to move inland, and they'd picked up a fifth member. How Zambian national Lastin Shavula came to join the four men in that car is a matter of who you believe. The four would say that Shavula had simply asked to join in with their travels, but Shavula would say that it was much more sinister than that. He claimed that the four men had essentially kidnapped him. He owed money to one of them, and the men had picked him up from his house and forced him to take them to people he knew so that he could try to get their money back. Shivula alleged that he was beaten and shoved into the boot of the vehicle for part of the journey. Shavula then claimed that a few hours into Sunday he'd been pulled out of the boot and told that if he helped the four with their robbery attempts he wouldn't have to pay them back and they'd let him live, he agreed. Shavula was no stranger to crime, he had already been in prison and even recognised two of the men from Goodwood Prison where he'd served time while awaiting trial a few months before. Although it would be easy to feel that Shavula was putting on a story to explain his involvement in what would eventually become a horrific crime, it may actually make sense. The other four men in the car all had gang affiliations of some kind. They'd all worked together or known each other in prison in the past. Shavula was the outsider. He did not belong to any gang at all and never had. As a foreign national, he was also unlikely to be incorporated into or accepted by any gang in the Western Cape. Shavula does say, though, that he gratefully accepted the deal, thankful that his debt had been settled, and at least for the time being his life was not at risk. He, after all, was sure that these men were only talking about robberies, a crime he'd committed many times before. Shavula, of course, had no idea that the man whose BMW they were driving in had been murdered by these very men just hours before. On Sunday, the five men watched several different premises, which they intended to rob. They decided against robbing these places for various reasons. In the early hours of Monday morning, while the residents of Haldesich were sleeping soundly, the gang picked up a hitchhiker and robbed him of the small amounts of money he had on him and all of his possessions, dumping him just a little further down the same road they just picked him up on. Later that day they found a house to rob between Leiplack and Feltriff. If there was any luck involved in this situation, then the family was lucky enough not to have been at home. They came home To find many of their possessions missing, but they could have no idea how close they had come to the horror that would befall another household the very next day. After this robbery, the gang turned inland again, toward the towns they knew well and in which they had connections who would give them information. They found one such lead for a suitable target from a contact near Nivotville on Tuesday morning. The contact told the group of men that a local woman had been widowed a while back, and there were rumours that the house held a safe full of guns from her late husband, and there was sure to be cash on the premises too. Their intel told them that there were currently four people on the property – the widow, her male friend, a female visitor from Cape Town, and that woman's small child. To me, If it is indeed true that the gang had such detailed knowledge of those residing on the farm that night, the fact that they proceeded with their plan makes this crime all the more frightening. Many of the five men had their own families. They had children around the same age as Emma. And yet, as the little girl was being seated at the dinner table, and having a bowl of chicken and vegetable soup placed in front of her for dinner. The five men piled into the car and headed out toward Nivoteville, only concerned with the spoils that house may hold. Emma hadn't wanted to eat that night. She told her mother that she was tired and didn't feel well, and asked if she could go to bed. After Julia had returned from her run, she'd showered then bathed Emma and after the rejected bowl of soup, tucked her daughter into bed, gave her her favourite teddy bear and switched off the light. Johann and Julia sat and sipped whisky while Hansi put the finishing touches on dinner. As the sun had gone down, Johann walked around the house securing the windows and locking the doors. Unfortunately, he failed to notice that the skylight window in Hansi's bedroom was still open. It provided easy access from the outside. It would later be disputed as to whether the men knew beforehand that Johann Verviers was a police officer. If they'd known, they may have felt arrogant enough to take the man on regardless. Or, there is a theory, that they'd been excited by the prospect of taking on a police officer, but they would not admit to either. As the three adults settled into the kitchen to start their meal, the scent of roasted meat filled the air, and the poorly sprayed BMW pulled into the pine tree line drive. The driver shut his headlights off, and they surveyed the home for an open window. They spotted the skylight, and within minutes, five men had silently dropped into Hansi Lo's bedroom. David raters had given each man an assigned task. He was armed with a pistol, and the other four had knives and screwdrivers. Each of the others knew which member of the household they needed to take care of, as raters had put it. Everyone knew what that meant. Raters himself did not have an assigned person to him. He would scout the house for guns, money and other valuables. Raters, it seemed, was beyond getting his hands dirty. Hansi was the first to realise that they were not alone in the house. She was moving around the kitchen when something caught her eye in the passageway. She froze, a look of horror on her face, as she took in the five men moving toward her. Julia noticed the woman's face and asked what was wrong. Johann moved toward her so that he could see what she was looking at. He'd been carving the meat with a knife he'd sharpened for that very task and he stood with it in his hand and no doubt his policeman's mind was firing away with all the ways that he could approach the situation. He knew immediately from experience that the fact that the men did not have masks on was not a good sign for him and the others. If they had just come to steal, they would have hidden their identities. No balaclavas or stockings over their faces meant one thing. These men did not intend to leave witnesses. Johan decided to approach this as calmly as he could. He raises his hands and places the knife on the table behind him to indicate that he is not planning on fighting back. Raters tells him they want money and guns. Johan says he has money, but no guns. Shavula and Reuters accompany Johan to the bedroom where his wallet and Hansi's purse are. Johan holds his breath as they pass the bedroom in which little Emma sleeps, blissfully unaware of the horror unfolding around her. The other three men stay with the women in the kitchen. Johan pulls his wallet out of the cupboard and tries to remove the cash to give it to raters, but the man snatches the wallet away. It's likely that Johan was trying to avoid the men seeing exactly what they would do when they opened the wallet, his police badge. Raters grabs the badge and sneers at it. Tie him up, he barks at Shavula. He's a pig. It would later be claimed that along with Shavula, Adams had also not been too keen on the idea of killing these people. Somehow, in his haze of mandrax and alcohol, he'd missed the directive that this was not going to be an ordinary house robbery. Raters was in charge, though, and his standing in the criminal community meant that there was no place for weakness among his pack. Everyone knew the score. The events that unfolded after this were a jumble of screams, stabs and beatings. Please note that I am about to get into the injuries that were incurred by the victims, which include little Emma. If you will find this too difficult to listen to, please do skip ahead now. Johann Verviers was struck with a heavy object in the back of his head. His hands and feet were then bound, and a piece of material was shoved into his mouth. While bound and completely defenceless, one of the men sunk a knife into his back at least ten times. He lost consciousness at some point during the attack, but was still aware of the screams of the women around him. Andre Solomons, at some point, expressed his desire to rape Julia. He'd thrown her onto a bed and started to unbuckle his pants when David Raters stopped him and told him that they weren't there for that. He grumbled and obeyed. Instead, Julia was dragged into a nearby toilet and repeatedly struck over the head with a toilet jug. Between the beatings, she cried out for her daughter. She begged Johann to tell her what to do about Emma. Julia Fairbanks Smith fought with everything she had to stop her life from being taken. By the time the men had finished stabbing her, her fingers were horribly cut from trying to fend off the assault. She knew that if she died, there would be no one left to fight for Emma. Try as she might, though, Julia was no match for these vicious men, and after receiving more than 20 stab wounds and 21 blows to the head, she was no longer moving or breathing. In the kitchen, Hansi Lo had been tied up with strips of material. She begged for her life, while she was stabbed 27 times, struck in the head at least 10, and then throttled with a rope. After explaining to the men how to disarm her car alarm, she was dragged to where Johan lay, and her throat was slit Emma, woken by the screaming, cried out for her mother. Reuters ordered Johannes Brankis to kill the child. The man told Reuters that the child knew nothing and they could just lock her in a cupboard. Andre Solomons, though, had no problem carrying out the order. He stabbed the child twice in the neck and then struck her over the head with a heavy flashlight. In all... The man, along with Shavula, who then joined in, stabbed Emma Wall 29 times, but the young girl did not die. Solomon stood on Emma's head with his boot and then slit her throat. After the house had fallen silent, the men moved through the rooms, claiming what they felt could be valuable. They took jewelry from Julia and Hansi, four firearms, two televisions, a microwave, the landline phone from the house, and the cooked meat from the table. They loaded their stash into the BMW and Hansi's Toyota Corolla, and tore off into the night. The gang had entered the house around 9pm, and they sped off at 1am. The men likely thought they'd covered their tracks. No one would be identifying them, because there was no one left to talk. Well, if these men thought that they were tough and hard as nails to do what they did to those innocent people, they hadn't bargained on Johan Verveers. When Johan came to, he was met with horrifying sights in every room, the men that had stabbed him had left his own butcher knife in his body. It hung out of his neck. He listened for a while to be sure the men had gone. Then he struggled to his feet and stumbled to Khanti's room where the phone was. When he found the men had taken the phone with them, he paused briefly in the bathroom to drink some water, trying to quell the nausea that was building in his stomach. Then he pushed himself to get outside. Every step sent an explosion of pain through his body as the knife, still lodged in his neck, moved around. At the carport he collapsed next to his car, the little energy he had spent. Johann knew that if he was going to drive the car he needed to get the knife out of his neck, so as excruciating as it was he reached back to the handle and slid the knife out. Then Johann Viviers pulled himself into his car and drove three kilometers to Nivotville police station. He was unable to walk even another step and simply sat outside the police station with his hand on the hooter until Inspector Dries Lewitz ran outside to see what the commotion was about. He was able to tell Lewitz that he and the others had been attacked, before slipping into unconsciousness. Johann was rushed to hospital and police and ambulances converged on Haldesig farm in the hopes of saving the other victims. Sadly it became very clear that Julia, Hansi and little Emma were beyond saving. The most hardened of police officers would say they'd never seen carnage so brutal. After photographs were taken, and before the pathologist's van arrived, one policeman picked up little Emma's body from the floor where she'd fallen and placed her back on her bed. As morning dawned on Haldesig, news of the horrific events of that night started to leak into the small surrounding towns. Telephone calls were made to Mike Wall and then to Julia's parents in England. A tale was told of a horror that was beyond belief. Hansi Loh's sons arrived at the farm later that day. Journalists would photograph one of the young men kneeling in the bright carpet of flowers that Julia and Emma had come to see, with an expression of absolute desolation on his face. Johann Viviers was rushed to Mediclinic in Paul. The closest hospital with capacity and equipment to treat such a badly injured man. As news of his survival started to leak, death threats were received from gang members in the area and Johann's hospital room was placed under police guard. The murderer's greed and arrogance would be their own undoing. Fingerprints were found on a framed photo of Hansi Lo's sons, Andre Solomons had picked it up to look at it and left his mark. Another clear set of fingerprints was found on the biscuit tin that had contained the cookies Hansi had baked for Emma. Johannes Brankies, though hesitant to kill a child, had thought nothing of grabbing a few of her biscuits on his way out. On the N7 road near Clan William, Police found Willem Mongeau's abandoned BMW. For quite some time, Mongeau would be listed as one of the attackers and sought by police. Several days after the crime, police would find Hansi Lowe's Toyota abandoned in Atlantis. Andre Solomon's had used the car as a taxi in the days after the murders. He'd even stuck his own picture and his transport permits Next to the steering wheel, and left it there when he abandoned the vehicle. If the man's arrogance wasn't so utterly disgusting, it would be laughable. Also in the vehicle, police found some of these stolen jewellery that the men hadn't gotten around to selling, as well as many empty alcohol containers. Johann Verviers, of course, was able to provide descriptions of all five men, He described the man who was clearly the leader of the group. How he had felt sick to his stomach when he first looked in the man's cold, dead eyes. While he'd been standing in the bedroom with the man, he'd gotten a good look at his tattoos. A set of gallows was carved into his forehead. A crown between his eyes. The letter Y on his nose. The word dog on his neck. And the letters MG behind his ears. The level of detail that Johann Verveers was able to recall was astounding. Undoubtedly, his training as a police officer had played a role in that. He also told investigators about the Brown BMW he'd seen in the town that day. By comparing sightings of the vehicle in town both before and after the crime, police were able to formulate a list of the suspects they were looking for. Of course, at first, there were six names on that list, as they initially believed that Willem Mongea was also somehow involved. Two days after the murders, the first of the perpetrators, and also the weakest link in the group, was arrested. Lastin Shavula was in Atlantis when he was taken into custody. At first, Likely afraid of the retribution of being a snitch, Shavula refused to cooperate, but under threats of significant prison time, he eventually relented and showed police where some of the murder weapons were hidden. That same day, four other photographs were released to the public. They included all of the gang members except for raters, but also included the photograph of Villa Mongea. It seems that no one during these initial days had wanted to finger Reuters, and it's really sad that, at least for the next four days, Willem's family believed that he could have somehow been involved in this vicious crime. By Monday, however, with the aid of Johann Verweer's descriptions and some community intel, David Reuters was identified as the leader of the group. A week after the murders, Julia and Emma were remembered in a packed church in Hout Bay. Emma's grieving father attended, but Julia's family from England would hold their own service as the memorial preceded the transportation of their remains to Julia's place of birth in West Sussex, England. The mother and daughter would be interred in the same grave, and their gravestone reads, Quote, Remembering with love, Julia Fairbank Smith, six four nineteen fifty nine, and her daughter Emma, twenty one four nineteen ninety two. Taken together from this life, amongst the wild flowers in South Africa, twenty four nine ninety six. End quote. While those who had loved Julia and Emma mourned, the police were on the hunt. Shortly after the memorial service was concluded, Solomons, Adams and Brankies were arrested in a midnight raid on a drug house in Friedenburg. They were so drunk and high on drugs, they made no attempt to resist. When they were arrested, Adams and Brankies were wearing socks that belonged to Hansi's sons marked with name tags. The gang leader, David Raters would be on the run for another two weeks. During this time, he would commit yet another murder. In the Eastern Cape, he shot and killed 50-year-old Welcome Kola before being arrested. While interviewing Andre Solomons, the man admitted to police that he had killed Villa Mungaea. Police would find his decomposing body buried where the gang had left him, and the man's name was moved from the perpetrator list to that of the victims. A small solace for his grieving family. Psychiatric observations of the men would take almost two years to complete. The trial itself would last months, and the final transcript was over 5,500 pages long the state would present the five members of the gang as the career criminals they were. Lastin Shavula was 26 years old when he took part in the murders at Haldesuch. He'd been born in Zambia and had also lived in Malawi before moving to South Africa. At the time of the murders, he was living in Atlantis with his girlfriend. He was working part-time as a bricklayer, but regularly partook in robberies and thefts with a crowd of men he ran with in Atlantis. He'd met Andre Solomons through his landlady, and the money debts he had referred to as the reason for him initially being picked up by the gang was a result of him robbing Solomons after he'd passed out in his landlady's house. Shavula had actually never been found guilty of a crime at that point, despite having been arrested several times, and once being charged with housebreaking. It had been during his time-awaiting trial for the housebreaking charge, on which he was acquitted, that he'd seen some of the other members of the group in Goodwood Prison. During his testimony in court, Shavula seemed keen to provide the court with as much detail as he could. As he had never been a gang member himself, his testimony and understanding of certain exchanges between the four other men often did not make sense, because they were using gang vernacular and signs that he had no way of understanding. Lastin Shavula was certainly no angel, but his history, at least when compared to the other men, did not seem to foreshadow his eventual direct participation in the slaughter of a four-year-old child. Regardless, When presented with the opportunity, he did take part. He can claim that he was afraid, intimidated or under duress all he likes. But another member of the gang, Johannes Brankies, did refuse to kill the child and no harm came to him. So really, Shavula had little excuse for his vicious behaviour. Accused number two, Andre Solomons, had recently been released from prison when he became involved with Shavula's landlady. He was just 24 years old when he committed the crimes, and when he wasn't in jail, he ran a minibus taxi service. He'd named his taxi Blood In and Blood Out. The young man had been gang-affiliated from a very young age, and his vicious and sudden attack on Villa Monggea was testament to the level of desensitisation he'd undergone from being involved with violent people during his early years of development. Solomons had previously been convicted of rape and two other violent robberies and assaults. At 16, he'd fathered a child, a daughter, and married the child's mother. He'd set up a home with her in Woodstock, but the child's mother did not want him there after he was released from prison, fearing his gang affiliations would bring danger to her doorstep, so he'd shacked up with Shavula's landlady in Atlantis instead. By all accounts, every action Solomon had taken during the days-long rampage of the group had been to impress and gain favour with David Raters. Much like in another dimension he may have started as a cashier in a supermarket and worked his way up into management, Solomons had started his life in the gangs as a runner and worked his way up by proving himself trustworthy and without conscience. The lifespan of the average gang member is far lower than their law-abiding peers, and at 24... Solomons had already lived a lifetime of bloodlust. Charles Adams was 36 years old when the murders occurred. Although he too had gang affiliations, he also maintained steady employment as a bricklayer in between his stints in Palsmore, which were numerous. Adams had 21 previous convictions on his sheet for assault, robbery and attempted murder. He was married with one child, a daughter of seven, and he and his family lived with his mother. Johannes Branches was unemployed and 31 years old. He lived with his mother and had two children, one was seven and the other 13. His record also reflected dalliances with gangs in prison and he had nine previous convictions to his name, for robbery and assault. It was David Raters, at thirty six years old, that was the bloodthirsty thread that stitched this menagerie of criminals together into the gang they became that day. As I previously mentioned, Raters was the head of the Hollanders gang, which belonged to the twenty seven section of the Numbers Prison Gang. He was widely respected and feared in the Western Cape. Raters had been released from prison just two weeks before the murders. In total, before the current murders, he had 16 previous convictions. He'd been serving a 14-year prison sentence for another murder. When he was released, he'd gone back to running a shabine in Malmesbury, from where he conducted all of his illicit activities. Anyone that encountered David Reuters speaks about the cold dead stare that emanates from the man. Despite the fact that he deals in drugs and alcohol when he's committing his crime, he refuses to partake of them. He appears to always want to keep clear mind. And it is with this clear mind that he makes the decisions that end people's lives. There is no haze of drugs or alcohol to explain away Rater's continued acts of violence. He simply seems to enjoy it. During the trial, David Rater showed absolutely no concern for the charges he was facing. In fact, when the prosecutor read out the injuries incurred by the victims in this case, he laughed out loud. Let me be clear here. For David Rater's and many like him, Prison is an uncomfortable place. It's a place where they don't necessarily have access to all the small pleasures in life, and I have no doubt that he would rather be walking the streets. But the gang culture is so deeply ingrained in so many of our prisons that it's almost like a second home to these men. They have even more power inside than they do outside, at least over their fellow prisoners. Raters, would be going back into prison with even more so-called street cred than he'd left with. He'd committed some of the most vile murders South Africa had ever seen, and that would earn him an even more formidable reputation. I'm going to go deeper into this aspect of this case in a moment, but for now let's get back to the trial, conviction and sentence of these men. In 1999, all five members of the so-called Flower Gang were found guilty of all charges against them, which included the murder of Willem Mongaer. The lengthy psychiatric assessments had concluded that of the five men, only Lastin Shavula was not a clinically diagnosable psychopath. They were declared dangerous criminals by the judge. This declaration in South African law essentially means that the criminal at hand is too dangerous to be allowed the privileges of an ordinary parole process, and any possibility that they would be released must be brought before a judge and heard as a complete case before parole is considered. Raters, Solomons, Adams and Brankies were ordered to spend 50 years in prison before being eligible for consideration for parole. Shavula was ordered to spend 30 years in prison before being eligible for parole. The judge ordered that all five members should be imprisoned in separate prisons across the country to avoid them ever having the opportunity to conspire together again. Johan Viviers retired from the police soon after the attacks, He moved to a coastal town in the Western Cape to live out the life that he should have been able to enjoy with Hansi on the farm in Nivoteville. The motives for the murders of Julia, Emma and Hansi and the attempted murder of Johan has always been a point of debate. In South African law, the state does not have to prove motive to prove guilt, But this is the question we as members of the public always want answered. Why? Why would it be necessary to so savagely slaughter these innocent human beings, including a four-year-old child? Although police would believe that the motive was purely financial and the men had just been out for money and guns as they had claimed, the public would even bandy about a possible racial motive. In reality, it seems to have been none of these things that drove these men to kill, and it would be the actions of David Raters and the events that took place after the murders, and even after the convictions and sentencing, that would seemingly point to a true motive. This motive theory is presented in the book Numbers by Johnny Steinberg. In it an ex-convict and member of the Numbers gang who was imprisoned with David Raters, both before and after the Nivoteville murders, speaks to the author about what he saw during that time. The man says that although David Raters had always been a well-respected gang member, when he left prison after his 14-year stint for the murder, he'd been a member of the 26s, and essentially a foot soldier. His appointment as head of the Hollanders came with the understanding that he needed to make a name for himself and establish his presence as a feared leader. When he returned to jail after the Nevotville murders, he was not just head of the Hollander faction, he was a general of the entire 27s. The convict that was imprisoned with Reuters claims that he had asked the man outright why he'd killed the people in Nivoteville. He says that Raters told him that he did it to complete the number. In other words, he did it to gain standing in the 27s. Now this could easily be dismissed as the fabrications of an ex-con and gang member who wanted to insert himself into a case that had made headlines. Except that if we look at the crimes and the testimony of Laston Shavula, there are actually many things that point to this being true. As Steinberg says in his book, these indicators would not have been picked up by even the most experienced criminal investigator unless they had knowledge of the numbers gangs. And to be clear, it makes no difference to the actual investigation all the matter of guilt or innocence whether these clues were picked up, but it does help us to get a glimpse into the mind of Raiders and why he may have instructed these murders to be committed. The first clue that Steinberg points out is Shavula's retelling of the words Raiders used when he told Solomons to kill Julia. He'd barked out, Up, bayonet! Upon which, Solomons had produced his knife and started to stab Julia. Shavula had no idea what this meant at the time, but the command harks back to a tale that's told among the Numbers gang about the formation of the 27s. To delve into the entire history of the Numbers gang will take more than a few episodes, but suffice to say that the gang has built its own folklore Of partially true and partially mythical tales to explain their doctrines and actions. Many of these are based on old military ideas in which the numbers are seen as an army of sorts. This is why they have rankings similar to those used in the military. The command up bayonet comes from a 27 story in which a general instructs his soldiers to produce their knives and proceed into battle. The bayonet specifically is a weapon that is regularly referred to in Numbers legends, and in the modern day it has translated to any weapon that can stab. The second piece of Shavula's testimony that's pertinent to this theory according to Steinberg, is that after stabbing Julia, Solomons had walked down the hallway, and in Blood on the Wall, he had written, Blood has saluted. According to Steinberg, the 27s is the only numbers gang in which new recruits must commit murder in order to acquire membership. It's believed that this was Solomon's way of declaring that he, under Rater's instruction, had taken blood and earned his place in the 27s. Adams then walked up to the writing, and affirms his own acceptance into Rater's newly formed group of 27s by making a hand sign, which includes his thumb and a pointed finger, and saluting while saying, General, salute. One last sign that this was very likely Rater's way of earning his leadership of the 27s happens when the gang is driving away from the house after the murders. As dawn starts to break, Shavula says he hears the man say, This is the son of the Hollanders, the first ray of Kilikijan. Of course, this means nothing to Shavula, but to Steinberg, it is yet another form of symbolism used within the 27s. Among gang members... It's believed that the spirit of Nongoloza works by night and the spirit of Kalikijan works by day. In Numbers' mythology, the ray of sun peeking over the horizon are Kalikijan's way of condoning the actions that took place when it was dark. It is important to consider, though, that it wasn't just the act of murdering three people and attempting to murder another, that may have earned raters this step up in status. It wasn't guaranteed. If another person had done that, they may not have received this increase in status. It was specifically because raters did it, says the ex-con informant, that it was accepted as such a significant rite of passage. Raters had been part of the numbers gang culture his entire life. He was also a highly intelligent man. He had every part of the numbers mythology and history memorised down pat. And it was this, combined with the murders committed in Nevotville, that earned him his promotion. The man would also allege that Raters had been very cunning about when he did what he did. Due to the violence required to become part of the 27s, Almost all of their members are imprisoned in Polsmore. This makes it rather difficult to recruit more members, and with the strict requirements of being a 27, the section of the numbers gang was dying out. Raters allegedly saw this, and decided that there was no better time to offer new leadership and extend his ability to recruit. Interestingly, although we heard that Shavula said during their rampage raiders had refused to drink or smoke dacha or mandrax, it seems that once he was imprisoned, this changed. The ex-convicts who shared a cell with him said that the raiders he knew would smoke four to five pipes of mandrax a night. He would smoke until he passed out in a cold, dead slumber. When he asked Raters why he did this, the man said that if he didn't, he would experience night terrors so severe that he would be climbing the bars of his cell to get away from the demons that chased him in his nightmares. The ex-con had gently suggested to Raters that perhaps this was the spirits of the people he'd murdered that came back to haunt him. Whether or not Raiters really had used the Nivodeville murders to set himself up for a soft ride in Polsmore, he would be sorely disappointed when his indeterminate sentence was handed down and he was moved from Polsmore to CMax prison in Pretoria. I cannot even imagine the relief that the indeterminate sentences must have brought the families of Julia, Emma and Hansi and, of course, to Johan, who'd survived and had received death threats from gangsters on the outside. But, sadly, that relief was to be short-lived. In 2001, the five men brought an appeal to the Supreme Court of South Africa, in which they first questioned the constitutionality of the dangerous offenders legislation, and secondly, appealed the determination in their own case. While the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the dangerous offender legislation, it did determine that in 1999, the court in the five men's case had not properly applied the law. The main reason for this was that the Supreme Court felt that the dangerous offender legislation had been incorrectly applied as a replacement for the death penalty which was abolished in 1995 in South Africa. This had never been the intention of the legislation, and as such, the Supreme Court replaced the sentences handed down with life sentences. At the time, this meant that the men had to serve a minimum of 20 years before being eligible for parole, and they would no longer be required to report to a court of law for their parole to be heard that they would be dealt with by the same parole system as other offenders. This essentially means that as of 2019, these men will have been eligible for their parole to be heard by a parole board. As far as I can tell, none of them have been released, but there is a Facebook page set up to campaign for the release of David Raiders, believe it or not. Raters, for his part, has been doing a pretty good job of being a thorn in the side of correctional services during his time in prison. In 2008, he led an appeal to the High Court to demand that he be returned to a Western Cape-based prison after he and ten other offenders were moved to prisons in Bloemfontein. Raters complained that his constitutional rights were violated because he'd been refused access to visits from his family. As of 2010, he was still in Mangaun prison in blumfontein and the reason I know this is that in that year, the Herald newspaper published an article detailing the fact that the murder of Welcome Nkolo, which writers had committed while on the run after the Nevotville murders, had never seen the inside of a courtroom. While Villa Mungaea's murder was included with the gang's crimes in the 1999 court case, Wilcom's was not, and Raiters was never put on trial for that case, despite admitting to the murder. One of the main reasons that correctional services moved many of these specific offenders, including Raiters, and they were quite open about this, is that these men would have had very little power In a prison in Bloemfontein. In most prisons in the Western Cape Reuters would be well known as a general in the 27s, but in Bloemfontein the gang ecosystem would be quite different. Unfortunately it seems that at some point Reuters got what he wanted and he was transferred back to Malmesbury prison where he would have an incredible amount of sway with prisoners. I have no doubt that the Department of Correctional Services came to regret this decision, as in 2019, the very year that Raiters would have been eligible for parole for the first time after the Nevotville murders, Netvac 24 reported that he was moved in an emergency transfer to Uniondale Prison after the attempted murder of a prison employee. Catherine Solomons was in her office in the school section of Malmesbury Prison when a prisoner, armed with one half of a pair of scissors, squeezed through three sets of bars and attacked the woman, stabbing her up to ten times in her head, neck and back. Catherine Solomons miraculously survived the attack, but it was determined that Raiters had given the order for her murder. Uniondale is still in the Western Cape, but it's about as far as you can get from a prison perspective before you enter the Eastern Cape. I cannot say for sure whether Raters is still imprisoned there today. Today, Heldersich Farms still accommodates guests who want to visit Nevotville to enjoy the wildflowers. As the tragedy happened so long ago, it's very likely that those visitors will have no idea about the horror that once unfolded in that beautiful piece of land, and perhaps it's better that way. Julia and Emma arrived at Haldesich with dreams of happy days among the flowers, and perhaps in their memory, and in the memory of the place that Kansi Lo so loved, the best way to move forward and dispel every lingering dark cloud over the farm is just to enjoy it and its beauty, as was originally intended. By twenty fourteen both Esmond and Prudence Fairbanks Smith, Julia's parents, had passed away. Her brother Mark started a trust in his sister niece's name. The intention of the trust is to create and maintain an arboretum of trees and shrubs in the village in England in which Julia was born. It's a place where Mark Fairbanks-Smith hopes people will be able to pause and enjoy nature, and maybe to picture a four-year-old girl running around and laughing among the trees, carefree and full of joy, exactly as she should be. For the community of Nevotville and the surrounding areas, the murders at Haldesich were a turning point. Although it's still probably one of the safer places in the area, the community members there came to realise that they were not as insulated from the bad things in the world as they thought. Even though this crime happened 25 years ago, people who live in the area still think about the victims lost and forever changed that night every time they drive past. Although I spent a good part of this episode discussing the possible motive behind this crime, and I hope, if you've always wondered, perhaps it gives you some more information, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And even though we may now know the general thought process behind these murders, it still doesn't really answer the question why. Why? Why did David Reuters and his four accomplices think that it was okay to take these three people's lives, to take the life of a four-year-old girl, just to further their standing in some gang? It just boggles my mind to think that anyone could be that revolting. This case is one of the few that has drilled itself into my brain. And I think it's because no one should have to have their last moments be that way. No mother should have to die screaming her child's name and Terrified that these men are going to her room next and there's absolutely nothing she can do about it No little girl should have to take her last breaths just four years after she took her first Confused afraid and not understanding why mommy isn't coming to save her. Hansi and Johan Verveers should have been allowed to grow old together on Heldesich, and watch many more seasons of wildflowers bloom together. Although these five men may have felt like little gods as they drove away from that farmhouse that night, having had ultimate control over life and death. Their power was sucked away the minute that Johann Vefiers lifted his head and dragged himself to his car. And as he sat outside that police station with his hand on the hooter, using his last bit of energy to relay what had happened, he took away any power those five thugs ever thought they had. With all their knives and screwdrivers and guns and psychopathy, Johann Viviers beat them out with the power of his indomitable spirit. Willem Mongea Julia Fairbanks Smith Emma Wool Hansi Lo Welcome Ngholo, rest gently and to all those whose lives were darkened by these five men. May you continue to bring your light to the world. We need it. Thank you for listening to episode 62, The Flower Gang Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.